Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive Podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the discussion from our April 2021 UX event, where you'll hear from Alex Wheeler. Alex is currently a senior user experience designer at Riot Games. This is an informal discussion with Alex about UX design in the gaming industry. He will be talking about how to craft and communicate your UX vision, the different roles UX designers can have on a game, some of the unique challenges they face in the gaming industry, how you can prepare for a career in gaming UX, and much more. So now, let's hear Alex's discussion, Crafting a Vision, a conversation about UX in gaming. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming. Uh, when Zeke reached out to me, uh, I, I get reached out to by a lot of people who probably have a lot of the same questions you guys have. And I found even medium articles and podcasts just aren't a great persistent. They're not easily findable over time. Uh, and so I'm, I'm happy to do something like this as opposed to a standalone piece of, of context. So, uh, yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions, have discussions. Please ask whatever you can. I will answer as honestly as I can. Um, this is all my own personal take. Uh, Riot Games is not, uh, my, my opinions do not necessarily represent the views of Riot Games, but I will be as honest with you as I can be. Amazing. Um, with that, um, I'll ask my first question. And um, I also want to thank everyone that submitted questions in advance. Um, most of my questions are actually questions that came from you guys, which is awesome. Um, but to start, uh, thank you so much. So do you want to just start by telling us just a little bit about you and what you do at Riot? Like, what does your day-to-day sort of look like? Yeah, uh, that's that's a great question. A lot of people ask, uh, like, what does a UX designer in the games industry do? And there's not, like, an easy answer, unfortunately. Um, it depends both what project you're working on, uh, what team you're working on, and what phase of that project, right? So if you're on a game team, um, you might be playtesting multiple times a day. You might be putting stuff in engine. You might be doing uh, mock-ups. You might be making flows. Um, more than likely, you're probably in a meeting convincing people that your idea is great uh, and that you are going to provide a lot of player value. Um, if you're not on a game team directly, which at the moment, I'm not on a game team, um, it depends what phase of the project you're on. So um, right now, I'm heavily in uh, execution and handoff. So I spend a lot of time in Figma, pretty much all day in Figma, um, answering questions, handing off design, um, making updates based on uh, feedback. Um, and then I'm also simultaneously doing discovery on new things. So I'm spending time doing stakeholder interviews, user interviews. I'm trying to map out what this opportunity space looks like, trying to figure out if it's a, a good thing for us to pursue. Um, yeah. And so my, my day-to-day is heavily variant, but it's honestly just like UX at any other company. You're going to spend a lot of time in meetings, uh, and you're going to spend a lot of time in Figma or Sketch or Illustrator or whatever design program um, you end up using. So, Alex, you mentioned that you're using, like, you're in meetings a lot. What's your, like, how do you keep your Figma stuff organized? Do you have, like, weird methodologies or do you think it's pretty standard? Like, I, I so, like, I use Figma a lot in my job, but I noticed that, like, certain people have different, like, quirks to how they work in that. Yeah, that, that's that's a great question. Anybody who like is practicing design will will probably run into different experiences here. Uh, at Riot, Riot is a very bottoms up company. Um, you generally do whatever you want, however you want. You're responsible for the outcome, right? Something is going to get shipped to players, and it is either going to be a good thing or a bad thing, and whatever it is, that's on you, right? So how you get to that outcome is largely up to you. That being said. 
you know, you are on a team with other humans, most likely you're probably working with other designers. And so some amount of consistency and uh, level setting is, is expected. And so when I started, I was the only UX designer on um, the team that I'm currently, currently on. Uh, and I ended up, we ended up getting one more UX designer and then a visual designer and then multiple more UX designers. And now we like just doubled our team size. So over time, we actually started in Illustrator. And then when we got two people, we switched to Sketch and then we switched to Figma. And now that we're in Figma, we have a dedicated way that we break down our files, not necessarily prescribing how you have to name things, how you have to name layers, all that. But generally, your work in progress stuff will be in this area. Your delivery stuff will be in this area. And for a delivery file, because it's not just designers that are going to be in, interacting with it, you will have your delivery file this level of browsable by somebody who's not necessarily familiar with an infinitely vertical and horizontal 2D space, right? Um, so we, we don't really, I, I've been at companies, larger companies that have tried to prescribe like your file names must be this way. And it just, it doesn't work and it doesn't provide a lot of value. Um, so Riot is generally both very large amount of freedom, but also like there are guardrails and guidelines. We do have a relatively, what I would consider now to be relatively advanced, like component library in Figma. Uh, you don't get that for free though. That is something that we've built up through blood, sweat and tears over many years. Yeah. It's a lot, it's a lot of work. A lot of people think that it just exists and no. I like Jay in the chat, the artboard copy, copy too. I feel like we all try and like come, we, we try to invest in like these naming cadences and we always end up with artboard rectangle copy too. I actually received a question from Paul. Um, so he wants to just know like, what's your story and how'd you get to Riot? Oh, hell yeah. Uh, I love telling my story. No, so uh, I, I've been a gamer my entire life. Um, I, when I was much younger, and there's some people in chat who uh, I actually play games with, I used to compete in games, in uh, shooters, uh, and eventually in uh, games like World of Warcraft, and then eventually in strategy games like StarCraft. And around the time StarCraft uh, was was around, you start to find out, like, hey, I'm not actually good enough to be a real competitive gamer, right? Um, and so I knew I wanted to work in games my whole life, uh, and that was kind of a wake-up call for me, that I wasn't ever going to compete at, at a level that would put food on the table or Chipotle on the table every night, but I knew I wanted to be in the game space. And so for me, it was engineering or design. Uh, and so at first I wasn't sure what, so I went into a general design degree um, and I ran my own front end business just to like put myself through school. And I, I found out very quickly that there were people who were significantly better, who had a significantly better coder brain than I had. Um, but I loved solving problems in creative ways. Uh, and I loved sort of facilitating the, that problem solving and uh, a thing uh, one of uh, the people I used to work for said everybody has a superpower. My superpower tends to be talking to people and getting people on the same page. Uh, and so I, I loved that aspect of it. And so I ended up going to UX and doing design at a multitude of companies. And one of those companies took me out to California, uh, into San Francisco in the Bay Area. Uh, and then from there, I didn't ship a single thing over a year and a half and did nothing but show up in meetings. And got promoted like three times. People are like, oh my God, you're so good. I'm like, I have delivered zero value. I'm not improving it as a designer. Uh, and so around that time, I went to a design conference uh, with another designer who worked at Riot and we hit it off and that's how I made the transition. But I knew I, I always wanted to get into games. So it was just a matter of when. Looks like Jay asked, how'd you get your door to Riot connections, LinkedIn? Yeah, so I applied to Riot four times. The first time I got one interview and was declined. And then I asked, hey, what should I work on? And they were like, we didn't see any of X in your, in your interview. And I was like, dope. Uh, I applied to Riot six months later and got rejected after two interviews. And I was like, yo, 
what did I, what should I work on? And they were like, we didn't see you demonstrate why. I then applied to Riot a third time and I got all the way through the interview process. Um, and Riot as a company across the board, any team, any team you apply to a Riot, this will be true. Um, they will not hire you if they do not have a plan for your growth, right? So if they will not hire a full-time person to do one task at one level, they need a plan for you to go from X level that you're being hired at to the next level, to the next level, and they need to know who's going to mentor you to get there, right? And so at the time, my third round through, uh, they didn't have that. I didn't have a direct manager. I didn't have a growth plan. So they're like, hey, uh, we're sorry, but we can't hire you, but we'd love to keep you in our system. And I was like, cool, right? Like every company says that, like, oh, it was us, not you. And then six months later, they called me and were like, hey, are you still interested? And uh, yeah, that's how I got through. So a little bit of that third round, I had met the rider and like got some introductions. Um, but I tell everybody this because most people apply, get rejected, and then never apply again. That's not a good path to getting into a company, especially like a dream company. For me, Riot was a dream company. A lot of people, Blizzard's their dream company. Some people, Valve's their dream company. Apply, ask for feedback. Your name will go into their system. You will be a prospective candidate. When you apply again, you're already at the top of the list. You don't have to deal with the black box that is internet applications to companies. Be persistent. I know getting rejected sucks. I got rejected three times from Riot, and but the fourth time was the charm, right? Um, what unique challenges does a UX designer in games face that you weren't expecting? There's a lot, right? So when I first started at Riot, they're like, hey, you're going to come in and do this thing that's not game-related. They made a big deal out of that when I started. Like, you're not on a game team. You're doing this other thing. We want to make that super clear. And I was like, yeah, I'm actually super excited to do that other thing. Uh, and I got there and they're like, actually, JK, you're going to be working on League. Uh, and I was working on uh, Champions. Uh, and I have never worked in the games industry before, never worked in the game engine before. As I have already told you, I'm not like a good coder. Uh, some engineers from my team in chat, almost in my like third week, I almost accidentally deleted like a whole League of Legends repo. And so I, th that was like the first challenge that they were like, hey, you're going to come work on the champion. It ended up being Kane, uh, for those of you who are familiar with League. And so I had never done an in-game in UI for a champion before. I'd been playing League every day for a decade, but I never built that before. And so all of that was new to me, learning how to do it in engine. For UX, we, we do a lot. Every UXer is familiar with user testing. But for games, you play test that in the morning, at lunch, in the evening. You send that out to your playtest team. You have other people around you playtesting it. And so when you're working on a champion, you're getting feedback all day, every day from hundreds of people. Uh, and it's very subjective. That, that was a, a unique thing for me. Um, the other thing is the service design aspect of working in the games industry is very real. And a lot of people don't consider that. Uh, UX doesn't start when you click play or when you're in game. UX starts when the user decides that they want to install your product, right? What is that web experience like? What's that download experience like? What's the install experience, update, patching? When something goes wrong on that path, what's that like? What's it like in Australia where every megabyte matters, right? Like they're very data capped there. Uh, and so that was uh, an aspect that I had never really considered, but hit me in a big way. Um, also, Riot ships to 26 countries in the world, right? And the cultural considerations from country to country dealing with online products, with things like privacy, what information is kosher to collect, what information comes off as like super fishy. Um, in the US and in China, Riot is a really well-known brand, but around the world, not so much, right? A lot of people know League of Legends, but they don't know Riot. So when Riot Games asks you for you know, your email, how does that come off in Russia? What is that like? So that was a lot of, there were a lot of unique cultural challenges there that I didn't expect. A lot of service design challenges there that I didn't expect. Those are just some of them. 
like, have you worked on localization? What are the insights and the challenges involved with that? Yep. If you write any string that is going to appear in any UI, test it in German and then test it in Korean and then test it in Chinese. Uh, that's pretty much it. Like, uh, I don't speak any of those languages, but in my now half a decade dealing with Loke, um, German will always break your length. German German strings are always going to break your length. Um, and then any uh, language that is done in characters is going to break your legibility rules. Uh, you think 12 point minimum font is great for all Latin languages. And you're like, yes, I finally found the right typeface for me. Uh, and then you see it in Korean and you're like, that's a jumble of ligatures that I like nobody can read right um, and so test it in German test it in uh, Korean and then if you do ship in simplified Chinese test it in simplified Chinese as well in your article you describe three UX roles yeah um, one is likely to have on a, on a game team could you describe those three roles and you know which do you think is the most interesting and what experience have you had serving oh. those roles Sure. Yeah, I, I actually like so when after I wrote that article, I had somebody uh, UX designer that I work with at Riot reach out to me. He's like, hey, I think you missed like a fourth role. And I was like, damn, you're right. I did miss like a fourth role. Um, but uh, the, so there's in-game UX, right? There's uh, the moment to moment gameplay, the how this ability interacts with this ability. How does it feel to use this thing? Um, what does it feel like to play this game? Right. Moment to moment gameplay in-game UX. That's a role. Uh, and we have a lot of UX designers who do that role. There's a round game UX, right? So like the metagame systems, the battle passes, the the purchasing. There's actually like a lot of e-commerce in games now. Uh, every game has a store. You have to buy those things. How does it feel? How does that flow, right? Um, so the round game UX. And then there's like the out of game UX, which is, um, that's what I'm working on right now. But it's like, how do you get the product? How do you download, install the product? Uh, we have for a decade, Riot Games was one game. And then we have two games, right? So how does that account system work? Do people sign up for Valorant and League? Or do they sign up for a Riot account and they just get both games, right? So those are the three primary roles. Uh, and then uh, my, my colleague brought up that there's sort of an R&D games UX role in which you will do a little bit of everything, but you're kind of expected to work in engine, in moment-to-moment -moment gameplay, in prototyping, there's a lot of a lot of process work, kind of filling whatever shoe needs to be filled at that time, uh, and I think that's very valid because uh, in each of those three roles I just described, you're probably going to be doing similar. You'll be solving a lot of unique and new problems every day, but you're probably going to be doing similar things, right? The battle pass might be different every time, but it's a battle pass at the end of the day. The champion in league might be unique every time, the challenges therein, but it's still a champion in League of Legends, right? In an R and D UX role, you could genuinely be working on. A completely different thing in a different engine and a different art style and a different for a different group of users every day uh, and you kind of have to pivot so those are kind of like the four ish roles uh for me personally i like all of them i love games i i play games all day every day uh when i can i do work sometimes all of the parts matter a lot to me right i had to enter my username and password into league of legends every day for a decade and then i was part of the team that shipped stay signed in and I no longer have to do that, right? So like, that's not part of the game, but it's super exciting for me as a player who had to type those characters every day for a decade and now no longer has to, right? So uh, I like all of those roles genuinely. I think the problems they each solve are very different, but very fun. So it really comes down to what you're more passionate about. I was kind of curious, you were talking about uh, one of the roles being like how a champion feels uh, in moment to moment gameplay. 
-hmm. how does that kind of turn into your work? Because I know when it comes to like UI, you go into Envision or XD, you build it out, you test it there. But let's say you don't have development experience. How do, how do you sort of start doing UX on those moment to moments? That's in, a really in good software? question. Yeah, that, that, that's a great question because I had the exact same question four years ago. Uh, and the answer is you either learn by scripting very poorly, very quickly, or you sit down with an engineer and you describe the outcome. So very, a very specific example, Kane, uh, originally when we were developing him, Kane is a champion in league. Uh, and what makes Kane unique is he has an ability that allows him to walk through walls. Um, in the initial iteration of that ability, you couldn't tell Kane was coming. You couldn't see him in the walls. Just all of a sudden, you were standing by a thing that for seven years uh, was a perfect safety, right? You're right up against a wall. You're good. You know what's happening. And then all of a sudden, there is this person on top of you killing you in a place that you could never have been killed before. Um, and so it kind of broke this expectation, this set of learnings that we had asked people to get good at, right? We had asked people like, hey, master this set of skills, understand this set of information and be able to react to it moment to moment. And Kane breaks that. And that's both what makes him fun, but also uh, felt really, really bad. Uh, and so in play tests, people, and this is true of users, and it's also true of other designers, people are having a really hard time articulating what was making Kane feel bad. People were just like, hey, I love playing him. I hate playing against him. I don't know why. And so it, it came down to sitting down with an engineer and just iterating, being like, hey, uh, I think it feels really bad when Kane just shows up out of nowhere. How do we fix that? Like, cool. What if Kane enters a wall and is visible all the time? All of a sudden, Kane started to feel bad to play, but people loved playing against him because he was easier to play against. He knew where he was all the time. Because he's in a wall, he shows up on your map. Great. Like, cool. What if he only shows up when he's close to you, right? And then we slowly iterated over time, playtesting. Like, you come in 10 a.m., playtest, iterate over 1 p.m., 2 p.m., 3 p.m., playtest again at 5 p.m., right? So you get instant feedback. You get really, really short loops. Uh, that's both what's hard and fun. Um, but it, we eventually end on, hey, well, how does it feel if you get this indicator here and this indicator here? And it started to develop there. And so you're not always going to be able to affect the change you would like to see, but it's being able to communicate that change and generate artifacts to share that change, right? Um, so for me, uh, flow diagrams are like my favorite artifact to use because they align people very easily. Um, in this case, we used a lot of storyboarding and a lot of like quick wireframes, dirty wireframes, uh, and then just sitting down directly next to like literally chair here, chair here with an engineer and the client open and just like messing around and playing with it. Do you ever find a lot of uh, UX designers obviously struggle with the goals of balancing like the user goals with the business goals and how do we, how do you strike that balance? Do you ever find that in designing for games, um, you find yourself struggling against like the game designers goals versus the users goals? Does that ever come into conflict and, and how so? Yeah, a hundred percent. That comes into conflict a lot. So game designers, a question I get a lot that's related is how does UX differ from game design? They're both user-centered design professions, right? Um, and the simple answer is game designers are systems designers. Uh, and as systems designers, they deal a lot with mathematical relationships. And those mathematical relationships can be beautiful on paper and in spreadsheets, but can feel terrible to use. Um, and in that way, that is where uh, a lot of those clashes come from, in my experience. Um, so for example, Again, I'll use Kane as an example because there's a lot of examples, but I don't know which ones I can talk about, which ones I can't, but I know I can talk about him because he came out a while ago. For him specifically, uh, there's a progress bar. And that progress bar is actually two progress bars that is different depending on the context of the situation. It's either you're going towards a blue 
or a red transformation. I was like, hey, that progress bar should be colored by whichever one you're going closest towards. So you can make a more informed decision. And the game designer, and the reason it is still this way to this day, um, the game designer is like, no, actually, we want it to be part of the mastery of the champion that you have to manually track in your head. Okay, I have meleeed ranged champions this much and that is the path I'm going towards versus I've meleeed melee champions this much and that's the path I'm going towards. To the game designer, that was part of the mastery of the system. For me, um, it was just less usable, right? I can't make an informed decision if I like, I, I didn't think it was testing the skills that necessarily um, mattered in that moment. But that's not my call, right? I, my call is to make a decision or give my opinion about how it feels to use in the actual experience. Um, and at the end of the day, when it comes to all the different problems we were solving, that's like a really minor one. Um, it's a moment in time in a greater moment. So it's like a subset of a subset of a moment. And so those clashes happen a lot. But generally, in my experience, it comes down to when the system mathematically makes a lot of sense or the game designer has certain skills they're trying to test versus the actual usability of the system, um, which is like what I'm responsible for versus what they're responsible for coming to a head. I'd like to ask, how artistic are you? How, how difficult are your interfaces that you're building? Is that something you would need or is that a must have? I am not artistic at all. I used to be, right? Art, art's a learnable skill. Um, and so I used to, with Logan actually, uh, draw and paint and do all the things a, a lot. But uh, visual design, and art is not my skill set, right? We like Riot in particular has world-class artists that we compete with other companies for from across the globe. It would be a sin to sh ship my art as opposed to their art, right? Similarly, we have world-class visual designers whose understanding of form, shape, and color is so much greater than mine. It's not to say I can't do it. Uh, we have shipped my visual design many times over the years. Um, it just takes me twice as long and at half the quality that it would take a real visual designer. Um, and so I've been at companies where the UX designer has had their title changed to product designer and is now responsible for the visual design and the UX design and the interactions of the whole gamut at Riot. We're super fortunate to have dedicated visual designers uh, and dedicated artists. Um, I don't work with a lot of artists right now. On a game team, you work directly with artists, uh, but I do work directly with visual designers uh, right now. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm a product designer, but um, I mean, it's the transition to game design. I'm just curious as to like from a, a normal, like standard product design position, which sounds like you found yourself in um, and then transitioned into game design. You know, tell, tell me more about that transition and tell me more about like your your mockups and Figma compared to back then, like how they are now versus back then. So I'm not a game designer. I'm a UX designer in games. Um, I'm a terrible systems designer. I, I don't math very well. But um, the transition from being a UX designer at a tech company in San Francisco to being a UX designer in a games company was really easy uh, because a lot of my day-to-day -day and a lot of those artifacts, a lot of that wireframing is still the same. Uh, the process I would go on to take people through a journey, like the user's going to experience this and then this and then this, I still generate flow diagrams. I still do story mapping sessions. Um, I still work directly with engineers, um, both front end and back end to implement those things. So engineering handoff is still a challenge and a, a thing that I deal with on my day to day. Um, so it, a lot of it's very similar. Um, the primary difference is in the users that we're catering to and the experiences that they're familiar with, right? Uh, so like 
designing game clients or designing in-game experiences is very different than web design. A lot of people will think, oh, website looks like this. Amazon's doing this. Google's doing this. And that's great. Um, but it doesn't translate one-to-one -one for PC applications or desktop. There's a lot of nuanced usability differences between the two. Uh, and so the difference is primarily in who you're designing for and what you're designing. Uh, designing native desktop applications or console applications or mobile applications is different than designing website, desktop website applications, right? Um, so, but uh, ultimately, day to day, I'm still working in design tools. Uh, anybody who doesn't know what Figma is, um, it's the same thing as Sketch. If you don't know what Sketch is, it's the same thing as Illustrator. Uh, it's just the newest, greatest uh, iteration. There's a new design tool every year. Um, I really, I really do like Figma and see a lot of value there. But uh, if you've used one, you've used them all. And so, a, a lot of my day to day is very similar. Uh, just working in a design tool, generating artifacts to help communicate experiential outcomes. What skills or experiences make a great gaming UX designer? And how do those skills um, translate to other industries? All of your skills and experiences will help you be a better designer anywhere. And I believe that. I think a thing you'll hear in design school a lot or in a boot camp or whatever is don't design for yourself, uh, design for your target user. And that's a really misleading saying, in, in my opinion, the spicy UX take here. Um, I think you should absolutely design for yourself, but you should keep in mind your biases, both your conscious and unconscious biases. And you can do that best by trying to consciously think about your biases and running your designs by other people. Uh, getting design feedback from other designers is the way you make great designs. But I think all of your skills and experiences are going to make a great gaming UX designer. It's kind of related to another question that somebody had asked, which is, do you need to play games to work as a UX designer in gaming? So I'll combine my answers for both of those questions into one. Um, which is no, but if you're passionate about something, it is going to make you better at that thing. If you love iPhones, you're probably going to have a lot of detailed, nuanced feedback about an iPhone that's going to make you a better designer for that product, but it's going to make it harder for you to design an iPhone for somebody who's never used a phone before, right? Um, and in that way, somebody who's never designed a phone before that lack of experience is going to bring a valuable perspective to that design product. And so keeping that in mind, um, all of your skills and experiences are going to help you become a better designer. Just getting experience designing anything is what I think is important, right? Whether it's a game, whether it's a website, whether it's a product, getting that, flexing those muscles, flexing those design muscles, those creative thinking muscles, particularly the communication muscles, learning to communicate your thought process effectively with other people is valuable in gaming, in tech, in business, if you are a good communicator and you can take your thought process, generate artifacts and communicate those artifacts out, um, regardless of what industry you're in, that's going to be extremely valuable. But I do think um, if you love games, gaming is going to be, there are easier UX industries to work in than gaming for sure. Uh, and so at the end of the day, if you love games, it's going to lend itself to being a better UX designer in gaming. But I don't necessarily think you need to be a gamer to bring a lot of value to that space. I actually work with several UX designers who aren't big gamers or who had never played Riot games before coming to Riot, and they've been hugely successful. What is what does a handoff look like to you? We do things a little bit differently than you might find it in an agency world, right? And if you're a designer at an agency or you've previously worked at an agency or with an agency, you might be familiar with throwing design over a wall, right? Um, you've been paid a certain amount of money to deliver a set of designs. You take those designs, you give them away, and you're done. At Riot, we function as uh, embedded units. So I work directly on a team. I don't work as part of a design org that gets loaned out to teams. I work directly on a team on a product. And so I sit, or pre-COVID, I sit directly 
with my engineers. And so a handoff for us, it happens in Figma. Uh, and we don't, we don't redline anything. We created over time a design system. Um, we communicated the principles of that design system and the design system itself out to our engineers, but we created it in Figma as a shareable artifact. And then for us, it, honestly, generally I found that I work with people who are significantly smarter than me. And so I get to sit down with people who are already smarter than me and then hand them pictures in a tool that tells them how many pixels and how far away it is. Uh, and so it's really easy. But for me, it's about communicating it early and often. Um, you don't want to hand off design to somebody who's responsible for executing that design uh, the day before they're responsible for executing that design, right? Um, so uh, in general, it's uh, setting up that relationship so that you know how far in advance you need to get that work done so you can hand it off in a uh, reasonable amount of time uh, so that the people who are responsible for actually executing on it have enough time to think about how they would execute on it. They're going to think of things that you've done wrong or that you didn't consider. They're going to give you that feedback. And then once you actually get to executing it, you're going to find things that neither of you thought about and you're going to have to have answers to that. And so the best way to mitigate those problems is to hand it off early, uh, talk about it often, uh, but really just collaboration, treat them as a, a team, like team member. It's much easier for me to say than it is for a lot of people to do. I, I, again, I'm very fortunate to work directly with my engineers. A lot of designers don't get that privilege. They have to execute in a black box and then hand it off. And then every little thing that they did wrong is seen as a failing. But if you have the opportunity to collaborate directly with your engineers, I would highly recommend you do so. And yeah. Figma is a great tool to hand off in, but you can generate artifacts like PDFs or you can generate it as a, a GitHub link. A anything you can hand off that will help communicate the specifics of your design, not just the pixel relationships, but the functionality relationships. Documentation is hugely important even for design. When you are working on a project, how do you know when you're done? Especially for some of these intricate or not necessarily like UI-based projects. I'll take it one step further. It's even harder at Riot because we don't really have a lot of deadlines. Usually uh, a thing is going out at a certain time uh, and you are done at the amount of time it takes somebody to build it minus the amount of time it takes to ship it, right? So uh, if something's going on in October and you have a two-week release process and it takes four months to ship it, like you kind of know when you're done with your design, right? And similarly, we kind of try to do that ourselves in our brains at UX at Riot. Like say, hey, it'd be unreasonable for me to not be done with this by this time. But over time, estimation is like one of the things I've had to improve the most on at Riot, um, which is like, hey, this piece of design work, this single page thing, that's a small for me, right? That's going to take me X amount of time to iterate. I'm going to share that design. We have daily optional design reviews, so you can opt into those. Um, I'm going to get feedback on it. I generally think one to two rounds of feedback is about the amount of feedback that you should be able to deliver a piece of highly functional design with. Um, and so after one or two rounds of feedback, I'll then run it by uh, my boss, who's an amazing UX designer himself, um, who will thumbs up, thumbs down, uh, and that's that's generally when I'm when I'm done. Um, it, again, it varies largely between if I'm if I'm shipping in a modal or an update to or a little pop up, like I'll just ship that, right? I'll just do it myself. I'll ship it. Um, if I'm shipping a larger piece of design, I'm going to get a lot of feedback on that, and I'm going to look for stakeholder sign off. If we're shipping like a whole product, that's going to go through like a year of people looking at it, giving feedback, disagreeing, agreeing. Um, and so there's going to be a pretty defined date, but it's at Riot, it's a little bit different. Most of the time, I would say you're going to be driven by deadlines. Riot's not very deadline driven. Anybody who's familiar with the company knows it's kind of a meme, but it, we try to do it as reasonable as possible. I was wondering if you could walk us through a project you've worked on at, Wire, uh, at Riot recently 
or just any project, maybe you've worked on at Riot, uh, what other teams were involved? How did you communicate your vision to those teams? And you've mentioned artifacts. Um, like what are some of these artifacts that you use in the process of like creating that vision and communicating it? For sure. I'll, I'll just go over King because I've used that as an example in so many of the questions tonight. So that project for me started off uh, as I was a UX designer on the team. Uh, the other resources that were dedicated to that project on the team were a game designer, a narrative designer, an artist, and a VFX lead. There was no motion designer for the project. And there we at the start of the project, we didn't have an engineer, but we eventually did have an engineer for the project as well. And so those were kind of the teams that were involved immediately with the creation of the champion as a thing in the game. Um, the other teams that are involved in the releasing of that champion, taking it from a thing that we've built as a small group of people to like a thing that's going to be shipped to 120 million people was like the playtest team who are a group, uh, they're a pod in our QA structure um, of very highly skilled gamers who play at the absolute highest level uh, and they test the absolute shit out of that design um, all day every day they write documents um, they give you feedback on uh, usability on balance on funness um, they, they have a very very but at the end of the day they are a very narrow set of opinions because they're so high skill level they operate at like the top 0.001% of players and so then we also have a gameplay team who are just normal people, um, other designers, engineers um, who play test twice a day, every day, and they give feedback as well. Uh, then you're part of the product and release teams. The release teams uh, responsible for looking at the entire year, everything that's coming out and telling you when the best range of time for this thing to come out is, um, what publishing beats that's going to go along with. And then they are responsible for collaborating with Maybe we want to do a cinematic for this thing. Maybe we want to do, uh, we have to do voiceover. So the voiceover team uh, and the audio team, there's a lot of teams that go into that particular thing. There's a lot less teams for the team I currently work on, but for uh, the release of like a champion, there's a lot of teams, right? Um, audio, VFX, art, motion design, engineering, product, playtest, QA, uh, publishing. Um, there's a lot of, lot of beats that go into that. Um, but uh, to kind of outline the structure, I think I've gone over it a little bit tonight. I started on the project. The project starts off as a Google Doc, really. It's like a literal just words written down. And then we riff over those actual words uh, very early on into those words. Uh, we prototype it um, in whatever way you want to prototype it. But we prototype that very, very early, like two weeks into talking about those just set of words on the document into what was a six month to eight month project. We had a playable prototype up in two weeks. Um, and then we iterate on that prototype from there. Simultaneously to that happening, we have narrative doing their thing, um, creating like the, where does this fit into the narrative structure of this universe? Who is this person that you're designing? You have art doing their thing, which is concept art, production art, animation, VFX. And then we had us uh, and a game design and UX doing, doing our thing. Around is like an eight month-ish project around month three we start bringing in users to test the thing itself because you can get feedback from everybody at riot but at the end of the day riot is still full of riders who have a certain affinity uh for how they play games what games they play their opinions while varied are still on a scope of 120 million people very narrow um so we try to bring in people early um, from all over the world from all of our different regions to play test in our usability lab we obviously can't do that as much anymore. Uh, it's mostly done remote now, um, but we do that. And we do that every few months. Um, we work with uh, insights and research people who will run those labs, generate insights and feedback and deliver that to us. Uh, and then we take action on that feedback. 
And so that's generally the scope of how that went. Um, functionally, as a UX designer, start off with a lot of whiteboard drawings over notes uh, into flow diagrams, using those flow diagrams to communicate the general structure of how we think the experience is going to go, using those flow dry diagrams to generate wireframes and storyboards, using those wireframes and storyboards to generate like low fidelity to medium fidelity UI mocks, using those low fidelity UI mocks to generate um, low fidelity animation uh, in motion design, and then using all of that low fidelity to take that into high fidelity and then shippable product. Yeah, so I guess you were talking several sections there. You talk about feedback and uh, before that you were talking about feedback as well. Um, I was just wondering, how do you handle all of the sources of feedback and the sheer amount of feedback? What do you listen to, not listen to? When do you let go of your ideas? When do you hold tight to them? Yeah, so at Riot, we have a saying called strong opinions loosely held. Uh, you should be, uh, you're the subject matter expert at your design and you should have strong opinions and you should express those opinions through your design. You should be open to feedback. Um, you are not, uh, just because somebody gives you feedback doesn't mean that one, you have to take action on it or two, it's even good feedback, but everybody's feedback is valuable feedback. Um, even if it doesn't necessarily respect the full context of the situation you're working in, right? You know, the users you're designing for, the very specific set of requirements that you have, and you don't have time to communicate that to everybody who's going to give you feedback. Um, that doesn't make their feedback less valuable. And in fact, a lot of times their lack of context can offer really valuable insight. Um, so uh, to balance all that feedback, generally you collect it in documents. Those documents can end up being very, very large. Um, try to generally narrow the group of feedback you get early on to uh, group of people of high context and then expand that as you go out, understanding that as you expand that feedback, you're going to be able to take action on less of it uh, and you're going to be uh, moving less fast. The more feedback you get, the less fast you're going to be able to move. And a lot of that feedback is going to be contradictory. You're going to get some people telling you to turn it yellow and you're going to be getting some people say, hey, yellow sucks, you should turn it red. Uh, and at the end of the day, you own that, right? So you kind of have to make a call. Um, I think uh, it is important though to acknowledge when people give you feedback so that when you don't take it and they come to you being like, Hey, I play tested this again. You didn't take my feedback. You can tell them why you didn't take it. Um, even if it's as simple as somebody comes up and says, Hey, I told you to turn this yellow yesterday and you didn't. Uh, and you're like, actually these people said, don't turn it yellow, turn it this color. I wanted to see how that felt. Cause maybe by telling them that context, they'll be like, actually they're, you're right. They're like turning yellow is stupid because yellow is the worst fact. How can one prepare their portfolio? Um, for a job in the gaming industry without any uh, UI, UX experience in gaming? Yeah, so there's a web resource um, that a brilliant colleague of mine uh, gave me, which will just kind of show you like, hey, these people got offers at these companies and these are their portfolios, right? Which is a, just like a really cool concept for me. Portfolios are like everybody's biggest worry. In my experience in design, especially if you're newer to design, you're everybody freaks out about your portfolio. At the end of the day, you have to keep in mind, what is your portfolio accomplishing, right? When you, anybody is hiring for a designer, they're hiring for you to create outcomes uh, in a specific area. So they need to know like, hey, I, I want this person to be able to ship a yellow box on PC. So they need to know that you have the ability to design a yellow box, um, not necessarily knowing that you need to be able to design that specific box, but you have the capability. You have the capability to do everything it takes to get it from Figma or whatever tool you use to ship, which includes like talking to developers, et cetera. Um, and 
you should also know they understand your level of experience, right? If you're an associate designer, nobody's expecting you to go take on three different product teams, all shipping different products and be the sole point of contact for them with no mentorship or oversight, right? If you're a principal designer, I would fully expect you to be able to do that. Um, so like understand that your context is going to be uh, taken into account. And that is true of your portfolio as well. So I see a lot of people worry like, Hey, I'm just out of school. I don't have five years of experience at Facebook in my portfolio. Um, it's less important. Actually, when I applied to riot, um, but the person I was interviewing with specifically asked me scheduled a follow-up round of interviews to ask me about personal projects projects that were not at companies that I had worked at previously, but were just like passion project. What is important is not that you did a bunch of work at Amazon or a bunch of work at Google or a bunch of work at LinkedIn. What is important is that you have the ability to demonstrate your thought process. Um, when I open a portfolio, I don't like honestly half the time don't even notice that you did this project at Facebook or you did this project as a college project. Um, what I notice is, did you articulate what the problem was? Um, did you tell me what you did to solve it? Did you show me a lot of your process? Um, I don't need to see all of the marketing images that you're a brilliant artist and company paid millions of dollars to create. Uh, I need to see that you could generate low fidelity wireframes and sketch things out and do flow diagrams. I need to see that you have the ability to articulate what the problem you're trying to solve is and how you got from where you started to where you ended up. Whether that's a college project, whether that is you tonight thinking about a board game uh, and doing that like in sketch form, it, it really doesn't matter. So that's my like big advice there. Um, something that was super impactful for me is for those who are familiar with Blizzard, the guy who designed Diablo, I have the privilege of working with him. He came into Blizzard with his interview. He had no formal game design experience. He literally just made board games with his kids as fun personal projects. And one of the board games he made with his kids had the basic systems of Diablo. And that's like how Diablo came about. And so like that for me, that is like, rather than panic about like, hey, I need to like have Facebook experience. Or I need to have this experience. Just go do stuff. If you're passionate about it, if you have projects, just go do stuff and put that in your portfolio. Understand that people are going to look at that and they're going to judge the quality of it uh, based on the level you're applying for. Like for associates, I don't necessarily care if you came up with the right solution. I care that you identified the problem, you had a bunch of process, and you had a solution. Hopefully, it was a good solution. Um, if you're a senior designer, that solution should be a good solution, and you should be able to articulate why it's a good solution or why it failed or didn't or, or succeeded. I also have seen this question a few times. I haven't updated my portfolio in like a decade. Uh, it just so happened that uh, I had a portfolio to get into a company naturally, and I've seen this question asked as well in chat, um, a lot of the work I did at that company was under NDA. So you can't put that publicly out in the world, but you can show it in a, like a private PDF to another company. So I ended up generating a private PDF for my next job and then for my next job and then for my next job. And now here I am 10 years later and I haven't updated my portfolio in like a decade. Just have like a string of PDFs that I've used to communicate the work that I've previously done or worked on. As a question, you mentioned side projects and like like showing your passion and everything. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do for passion projects, what you do on the side to, to help you or just anything in general? So I wake up and I walk down from those stairs right there to this computer and I work and then I play games until I fall asleep. And that's pretty much what I do every single day of my life. But 
in those rare instances where I get super tilted or something, I run into something and I'm like, this sucks. I will generally try. I like a, a thing that I have learned to do. And I wrote a medium article about this as well is I've tried to, when I feel that like, Holy shit, this is terrible. Like, why is it this way? I've tried to sit down and think, okay, why like a bunch of brilliant people made this and shipped it into the world. It is this way for a reason. Even if I think it's terrible, why do I think it's terrible? Why do I think they went this direction? Uh, and what would I do differently? Uh, and I tried to articulate that in normally really low fidelity, probably just a Google Doc, sometimes Figma, sometimes a sketch. Um, and then I just let those build up over time, right? Like uh, like PUBG, like this initial implementation of this thing drove me crazy. Uh, I understand why they did it. They did it to drive these goals. I think they should have done it this other way, like that kind of stuff. That's generally what I will do. Uh, occasionally I'll get super, I'm like a super demotivated person. I love playing games and I don't enjoy doing much else. Uh, so I have a hard time building up the motivation to like go work all day and then come home and do more work. Uh, but uh, occasionally when I get really motivated, I will attempt to work on my own game um, that with people who are much smarter than me. I generally have uh, engineering friends. Uh, I have art friends who will help me do this because I lack the ability to build anything myself. Uh, and so occasionally, probably about once a year at this point, I will try to work on my own game, just a proof of concept about some mechanic or something that I think is really cool. But yeah, that's generally what I do. What skills or experiences do you think make you like irreplaceable at Riot? Um, and you also mentioned that like your superpower is getting people on the same page. Um, how'd you learn to like really flex that superpower and get the most of it? Uh, again, I just, I surround myself with people who are better than me at everything. Right. Uh, I think that's how you improve at anything. Um, and I, I actually learned this lesson, like when I was a kid uh, and I was on a wrestling team and I was really bad at wrestling. Again, I'm very lazy. I don't like exercise at all. Wrestling is all about how in shape you are. And so when I was wrestling, we did a lot of sparring and I always like sparring with people who were just a little bit worse than me. And my coach came up to me one day and he said, yeah, that's a great way to never get better. You're going to get better by sparring against people who are going to kick your ass, who are a lot better than you. That's how you're going to learn. And I've honestly found that true in gaming too. If you want to get much better at a game really quickly, find somebody who is significantly better than you. You're going to be miserable. You're going to lose a lot. You're going to be the reason why your team loses. Um, and you're going to get so much better so fast. Um, that's true in life too. My boss, actually, my current boss started as my colleague. We worked together. He was very clearly better than me at a lot of things. He was significantly more senior than me, but uh, Riot's very flat. So you can be an associate and work with seniors and they're, you're not accountable to them in any way. You're just peers. They just are more senior than you. My boss was obviously significantly better than me at just about everything. Um, and so I had the, um, I, they actually asked me like, Hey, do you, would you like to report to this person? I'm like, absolutely. I love working with them. I love, I have loved over the last many years working for him. Um, and he's improved me in a, a wide variety of topics. Generally, when I find myself not good at something, I try to find somebody who's really good at it and let them help me, right? Um, so for me, a big project of mine when I started at Riot was I noticed that a lot of game designers were really good at articulating systems in game design problems. I was not. Uh, and so I sat down with a senior one, uh, his uh, name is Jeevan, and was like, hey, I'm really bad at this. You're really good at this. Could you help me improve with this? Absolutely. Uh, and so that that's ge genuinely how I've gotten better and learned to express my superpowers just by working with people who are significantly better than me at things that I am not good at and talking to them about, hey, I've been working with you for a while. What am I good at, right? Uh, and then generally you'll start to notice as well. But uh, be honest with yourself. If you can't be honest with anyone else, be honest with yourself. And that includes like 
knowing what you're bad at and then just find people who are better at it than you. Hopefully that answers. Uh, there were two questions in there. Hopefully that answers one of them. I kind of forget what the other one was. So uh, along those lines, what was kind of the biggest hurdle you had to overcome or like the biggest obstacle that you've now conquered? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, it's kind of twofold, right? There's uh, a project that comes to mind as in it was a really hard project. And um, then there's like personal traits that have come to mind and like things that I've had to overcome in working with other people. And so like one of the hardest projects I ever worked on at Riot was called, uh, I, I call it GDPR, which is a uh, set of privacy legislation in the European Union that was coming out. Uh, anybody who's collects any information has had to design systems around it knows about GDPR. GDPR was complex because it's like a 250 page legal document written by lawyers. And its implementation is also bespoke per region in the European Union, which means you can have different implementations of GDPR in every country that's in the European Union. Also, Brexit was happening at the same time. Uh, and so for me, uh, I was a UX designer at the time, and I was working a lot in cybersecurity. So I was familiar with a lot of the security concerns, but I had never worked directly with lawyers. And lawyers um, are very smart. Turns out, really good at arguing. I, I also am okay at arguing. And so a lot of the struggle of this was working with people who are really good at arguing and can express legal risk in a way that I could not, but they're, they were advocating for, um, at the time, uh, they were advocating for what I consider to be a very, very bad experience uh, for players. And I had to balance and I had to learn, actually, they were advocating for a very bad experience for players using their expertise of the legal system that I did not have to justify the extreme measures that they were taking. Um, for me, I had to, in that moment, learn that these people are actually just really awesome humans who are not trying to ship terrible player experiences. They are trying to do their job and react to the legal risk that Riot as a company is facing. It is my job to try and find the balance between the legal risk Riot is facing and the best possible player experience, right? Because the best possible player experience is that anybody can magically get into League of Legends with no account creation, no download, no install. And we know everything we need to know about you so that we can communicate with you in the future. Like that's the magical utopia that we wish existed, but it, it doesn't, right? And so there's some amount of information we have to collect and then we're responsible for that information. And GDPR makes it more difficult to collect that information, what information can be collected, at what age can we collect that information without legal intervention, et cetera. So that was a really hard project and learning to communicate with subject matter experts whose goals are opposed to my goals in a way that acknowledges that they're awesome humans who aren't trying to just fuck me is like they're, they're doing their job and they're really cool. I just have to learn to communicate with them in that way. Yeah, that for me was the hardest challenge. Um, and still to this day, like anytime somebody comes at you in a professional way and is like trying to do the exact opposite thing that you're trying to do can be really challenging, right? And trying to find that middle ground can be can be really tough. So there was something that when just speaking to you and also listening to your podcast that you kind of, that you talked about is this concept of like introducing friction, intentional friction into games and how traditionally in UX, we want to avoid friction because that's typically a bad thing. Um, but in your position, that's actually something you really think through and even thoughtfully introduce. So I thought you could just explain or talk, <laughs> explain, talk through that a bit. Yeah, there's kind of two sides to that. Um, one is intentional friction in games themselves because friction is fun in games, right? Uh, if you went into Call of Duty and every time you pulled the trigger, you guaranteed hit someone in the head, um, that would be really fun for a very short period of time and only because you have the context of 
years of having to manually aim that and trying to click them on the head. It's not a lot of fun to just get that headshot for free. The friction and the mastery level of learning to aim the cursor hit that trigger at the right time, predict movement. That's where the fun comes from. Um, the learning and the, the, the mastery and the growth, the experience of like, Hey, every time you click it, it's going to, you're going to get a headshot. Like that's much easier. It's much easier to use. It opens up to a lot more people. A lot more people would be good at call of duty if they just got free headshots. Um, but it's significantly less fun. So there's that aspect to intentional friction whereby the mastery curve and the, the mastery level and the learning curve and the, the skills tests of the game are what is fun. And then there's, a different side of friction, which is when you look at account creation, this is something that most UX designers can re relate to. You look at account creation, normally your goal with accounts is just to get as many humans or not humans through account creation as possible. You're looking for click-through rates. You're looking for a number of accounts created. Your KPIs are just quantity and that's all you care about, right? That's not always true in games, particularly at Riot, right? One of the things we care about is not necessarily making it as seamless as possible. We want it to be easy to use, but we want real humans at the other end who are quality users um, that we can cater to, right? We don't necessarily care about getting the 1 billion people through the queue every single day as seamlessly as possible and trying to pinpoint the exact drop-off location. We want to know where people are dropping off, but we want to know not because we want to make sure that no one ever drops off there but that real users who are trying to get through the system and have a real relationship with Riot Games, the company, aren't getting hung up on something hung up on something there. And so in that regard, we are okay with greater degree of friction to ensure a better long-term relationship. And the way that this might take form is like email verification. It's a lot easier to not have email verification. Uh, you just go create an account, you're good to go. That comes back to bite you when somebody loses access to their account or somebody gets compromised or somebody needs to recover their password. And then you can't recover their password in any meaningful way because their emails aren't verified, right? Uh, for a long time, if you lost your password for League of Legends and you went through player support, first of all, you have to go and contact player support. And that's expensive to do because you have to have humans. And then to get your password back, you had to remember the first champion or the first three champions you ever bought in League, which could be a decade ago, and you have no idea, right? But if you had a verified email, we could just send you a password reset. But we didn't require verified emails for X number of years when we started. And so all of those players got through the funnel a lot faster and then hit friction along the way, right? And so email verification is one of those examples, uh, but there's a lot and you can probably imagine um, where if you, all you cared about was getting people through quickly, um, you would sack, it would be a much better experience up front. And a lot of companies, a lot of tech companies do that. Um, but in games or in any environment where you care about the quality of your end user, um, you might introduce intentional friction there as well. What do you, like, what's the, like, I guess, main thing you'd recommend to someone, a UX designer that's interested in getting, getting into gaming UX? Like, like, what's the one thing they could start doing now to really set themselves up for success? Make something tonight. Just do it. Like 10 years ago, if you wanted to make something related to gaming as a UX designer, first of all, people would be like, what, what is UX? Like, well, like, what is this? So you're an interface designer, right? Um, UX is a thing now that's widely understood, even in the games industry, but it's not universally understood. So one, go make something. It's never been easier. Uh, Unity is free and super easy to use, even for someone who can't code like me. Unreal is free and super easy to use. And in the process of learning how to use it, congratulations, now you know how to use a game engine, right? That makes you much more likely to be useful to a game team when you can use a game engine, right? So just go make something. Uh, it doesn't have to be functional. It doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't even have to be the best possible thing. But having any artifact that you can demonstrate, you've thought about these things 
and you've thought about how to communicate these things, that's huge, right? Um, I would say nine out of 10 people that uh, I interview don't have the things made in their portfolio. And the one out of 10 person that does very likely gets follow-up because they've thought about these problems. We were able to have a conversation about how they thought about these problems. And they showed me that they thought about these problems. And honestly, for a lot of like associate level positions, it doesn't matter that it was terrible and that the game wasn't fun or that the in non-gaming roles that the solution was incorrect or that I didn't necessarily agree with the color palette choice that they went with. Um, that it's irrelevant. They knew what the problem was. They did something. They made something to show me like what they would do. So go make something, especially if you want to get into games. I, I can't stress that enough. That That's my first thing. And the second thing that I always tell everyone and it always leaves everyone unsatisfied is just don't give up. Just don't, just don't give up. If you apply and get rejected, it's going to suck. It always sucks. Trust me. I know. Don't give up. Uh, like so many people never reapply again. I'd say nine out of 10 people never reapply, which stinks. Because if you make it past even the first round of interviews, your name is in our system as somebody that, hey, this is a high potential candidate that we should follow up with in the future. And if you never reapply, it's like 12 months or something or 16 months or 18 months, it just gets like this automatically just wipes it, right? And so you might be a high potential candidate that we're really interested in talking to again, who you just didn't demonstrate this thing we were looking for. And you can ask like, hey, what went wrong? Ask for feedback. Uh, and if you had reapplied in six months, you would have gotten through. Uh, but most people never reapply. So don't give up. Be persistent. If you want to work in games, getting into games, getting into any specific company is actually pretty tough. People talk about how hard it is to get into the games industry. But anybody who's tried to get into a specific company can tell you how hard it is to just get into any specific place. If your goal is to someday work at Facebook, right? Getting into Facebook can be really tough. Getting into Google is really tough. Um, getting into gaming is equally tough. So you might not get into the specific company you want, but getting experience anywhere is going to be valuable. So make something and don't give up. Those are like the two useless sounding pieces of advice that actually are super important. A big thanks to Alex Wheeler for presenting. If you learned some things from Alex, be sure to share it with your team or share it on Twitter and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events.